Hello, New York, and welcome to our listeners across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and welcome to Rediscovering New York, a weekly radio show that showcases New York City's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Here every Tuesday at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, also its vibe, its feel, and its energy, really what makes the neighborhood special. And we will do that mostly through interviews with urban historians, local business owners, artists, and interesting neighborhood personalities. Each show will be available on archive and podcast the day after the show airs. And occasionally, I'm going to host a show about an interesting part of the city that is not about one particular neighborhood. Could be one of our fine urban parks, a great museum, the history of our transit system, the city in the time of a particular social or political movement, or maybe a musical genre or a unique New York architectural phenomenon like Rockefeller Center. Each radio episode will be informative, entertaining, illuminating, and of course, we're going to have fun doing it. Uh, And today, tonight's show, we're going to be focusing on Brooklyn Heights. It's our third show and our first show in Brooklyn. Uh, Our first guest is a friend of mine. He's David Griffin. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast who provides creative sales-enhancing services for the national real estate community. David's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms, in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. His Room at the Top series, co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent New York, is the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. David's writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust Preservation Magazine. That's quite a roster. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, Tell us about yourself. How did you develop an interest in neighborhoods and in architectural history in particular? Well, uh, my mother was an artist and uh, raising us uh, whenever we went to a a trip to someplace, whether it was Montreal or into a different district of New York City or elsewhere, she'd often draw and sketch the places that we were going to visit and encourage us to do the same based on our memories of uh, the trips that we were taking. Um, We also were among the first children to be employed by New York State uh, in the Parks Department. Uh, My siblings and I were all costumed interpreters at the old Bethpage Village Restoration out on Long Island, and we used to work during the annual fair out there, the, um, the county fair, wearing period clothing and occasionally at that time staying over uh, during the night in some of the period houses. So I sort of was always inculcated with this idea that those things were of interest and uh, I kept that kind of moving forward in my life. Um, Architecture became very interesting to me as a way uh, that society kind of expresses itself. Um, I uh, majored in art history and English at Vassar with a focus on American architecture. And then I started writing freelance uh, and then moved into marketing support um, in 2013 with my own business. Oh, great, great. Well, when we come back from the break a little later, I want to ask you about landmark branding. But uh, so speaking about American architectural history, we're focusing on a neighborhood today that has extraordinary architecture. Yes. Um, when did people start living in what would become Brooklyn Heights? 
Well, the native people, of course, the Montauk people, were there hundreds and hundreds of years before the coming of white settlers. Uh, but the area now known as Brooklyn Heights uh, had its first population in the early 1640s. As a matter of fact, ferries began to run across the East River between the Brooklyn Heights section and Manhattan to serve the farm communities there. It was very much an agricultural community. Uh, there was no uh, sort of urban aspect to it per se. Uh, and by the time around 1800, 1814, most of Brooklyn Heights had been consolidated into seven uh, estate-sized farms that were owned by various Dutch families as well as ancestors of the Livingstons. When did the first town or uh, like uh, commercial businesses start to, to coalesce around what we, what we know as Brooklyn Heights today? Uh, basically, the move towards development began in 1814 with the creation of the Fulton ferry system. These were steam ferries, and all of a sudden there was an idea that there was a viable sort of version of mass transport, if you will. It might have been the first mass transport system in New York City at the time. Uh, and suddenly people realized that it would be actually easier to get from Wall Street, where the banks and major businesses were coalescing in Manhattan during that time period, to Brooklyn Heights than it was to get from Wall Street to Upper Manhattan. It actually took less time to just cross the river on the ferry. So um, a two rival developers, the Hicks brothers and uh, a Mr. Uh, Hezekiah Pierpont, uh, both sort of came to loggerheads over how they thought that the property should be developed. The Hicks had acquired a substantial um, bunch of the property to the north of what is now Clark Street and Pierpont to the south. Uh, they laid out the, the plats in different shapes. Uh, Pierpont had larger plats for larger, more grand buildings. Um, the Hicks brothers focused on plots that were smaller and would appeal to the artisan class or tradesmen already living in the area. And after the 1830s or so, uh, Brooklyn Heights was well underway in terms of development. So even then in the earlier days, there, were, there was a part of town for uh, the expensive side of the tracks and one for maybe the working folk in the, yes. sa in the same neighborhood. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, how did that impact the way Brooklyn Heights would develop? Uh, because t today we sort of think of, of the Heights mostly as a well-to-do neighborhood, and we'll talk a little bit about how it how it became that after, after the Second World War. But you know, I wonder what the neighborhood was like uh, early on when you had these two types of people living in it. Uh, I think for the most part, uh, Brooklyn Heights was always seen as very, very broadly speaking, a prosperous community. In other words, the artisans and small tradesmen and the local merchants were doing well by you know, any conceivable standard. The people who were more moneyed were the people who were working on Wall Street and had decided to move to Brooklyn Heights because fresh air, the commute was more salubrious. Uh, they had a chance to sort of build uh, new buildings that weren't uh, you know, being surrounded by commercial development the way that a lot of the more upper-class neighborhoods in Manhattan were continually having to reinvent themselves. You know, the March of Commerce up Fifth Avenue, et cetera, and so forth. That never really happened in Brooklyn Heights. Uh, Montague Street became the commercial uh, sort of core for that one district, but the houses and grand homes and town buildings around it uh, pretty much remained intact throughout its history. Hmm. Uh, interestingly, the development started in the northern part of Brooklyn Heights in the smaller plats first, 
and then moved downwards. So you get a kind of interesting transition through history of the architectural development of America, beginning with the late federal period and really encompassing every imaginable period uh, through the 19th century and into the early 1920s. And there are still some beautiful old federal style houses in the northern part of the Hyatt Sermon. I've even uh, on one of the walking tours that I hosted, I remember even seeing wooden framed houses. Yes, there are several of theirs, though, that are among the oldest left in New York City in terms of townhouse development. As the more well-to-do started to uh, commission their houses to be built, uh, what kind of houses were built? What kind of styles were there? You see some extraordinary architecture there now today, like where the Brooklyn Historical Society is based. Uh, and, uh, and along Pierpont Street. If I were to make a suggestion to an out-of-town visitor to visit one neighborhood in all of New York City that really existed as a catalog of New York City building styles, Brooklyn Heights would probably be my suggestion. Uh, really, every single major style that is still intact at all anywhere in New York City is represented in Brooklyn Heights and by some very, very um, stellar examples. Um, one of the most interesting things to happen, I think, was the embracing uh, during this time period in Brooklyn Heights of the row house as a um, middle class to upper class style development, whereas in Manhattan in the beginning freestanding villas were still seen as sort of the uh, the kind of mark of the, the wealthy. Um, so uh, in Brooklyn Heights, the row house became very much identified with the borough overall, thus you know the term brownstone Brooklyn. What many people don't know is that the first use of brownstone that we are aware of for a domestic building was actually in Brooklyn Heights, a uh, house that unfortunately no longer stands. Uh, but there are houses on Montague Terrace, on Pierpont, um, and in that district that are the oldest uh, extant examples of brownstone architecture, and they are quite substantial, uh, really quite magnificent buildings. Um, but however, most of them are row houses. In other words, they share a party wall with another building. They're not freestanding in any way. There are one or two houses that I think are freestanding in Brooklyn Heights. But yeah, the idea of the, the brownstone row really starts in, uh, starts in Brooklyn Heights. And I remember there's actually a house in Brooklyn Heights, and I, as I understand it, it's very rare to have an inside of a, of a townhouse be landmarked. And there is one. I've forgotten where it is. Uh, That's ringing a bell for me as well, but I can't recall the exact address. There are several houses there that are really quite one of a kind. Uh, Frank Freeman, who was working after the Brownstone era in what was called the Richardsonian Romanesque style, uh, variant of Art Nouveau, has several major houses in uh, the Brooklyn Heights area, which are quite spectacular. And I think the house you're referring to is a design by him. When was the neighborhood completely developed? When were uh, pretty much all available plots of land had houses on them and uh, it no was more farms? It just pretty much pretty much developed by the 1890s i'd say and then there was a secondary wave of redevelopment and uh, particularly on the commercial core area but in some areas where apartment buildings came in. So you had um, neo-Romanesque and Art Deco designs in the 1920s, uh, some very interesting modern designs that went in, and then some 1950s work um, uh, immediately post-war, uh, in addition to the, the large plaza development, which happened in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'd say that uh, since the 1960s, there hasn't been much new development in Brooklyn Heights overall. One really extraordinary building that I think goes underlooked and underappreciated by many people 
it's not a residential building, it's Borough Hall, which was the city hall. Mm. Uh, it was constructed, I think, in the 1840s in the amount of, it, it, it's exquisite, it's really, it's unbelievable. But of course, because it's not a city hall anymore, it's just a borough hall. Mm. Uh, most people who are interested in the city's history end up not visiting it. Right. It really is a spectacular example of the Greek revival. It's one of the largest Greek revival public buildings in New York City. And uh, the interior is actually quite notable. If there's any particular uh, chance or reason for you to take a look inside, uh, the original paneling and columns, a lot of the wrought iron work are all still there as well. Hmm. I've been to several functions. There also that what's really, one of the things that's really beautiful is the original, I think it's the Board of Aldermen mm -hmm. uh, room on the second yes, floor. Yes, that is that's, gorgeous. That's really, really beautiful. Uh, Brooklyn Heights had some interesting history in the abolitionist movement, didn't it? Uh, it did indeed. Uh, it was a center of abolitionism in New York City uh, and was associated with particularly Henry Ward Beecher, who was one of the most outspoken abolitionist ministers of his period. Uh, his church was uh, what is now the Plymouth Church of the Pilgrims, which still stands. Uh, and under Beecher, so many slaves stayed in the church en route to freedom in Canada and elsewhere that it was later called by some the Grand Central Terminal of the Underground Railroad. Wow, wow. And of course, uh, Beecher's daughter, Harriet Beecher Stowe, wrote that great novel. Uh, yes, Uncle, Uncle Tom's, Tom's Cabin. Cabin. Yes, yes. Well, we're going to take a little break, and then we're going to come back and speak with David about the later history of Brooklyn Heights and a little bit about uh, his work in architecture, Landmark Branding. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Who do you want to connect with? Are you an entrepreneur or intrapreneur looking to build your following? Welcome to our show. Follow Me Friday with Joan and Priya. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern on talkradio.nyc. We're, We're your digital, digital connectors. connectors. Woo woo! What's that? <laughs> <laughs> Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Well, we're back on Rediscovering New York talking about one of my favorite neighborhoods, Brooklyn Heights in Brooklyn, New York. And our first guest today is David Griffin. Uh, David also is quite an architectural historian. And if you ever have the privilege to be at any of his talks, one of which I'm hosting 
uh, the end of the month. Uh, David is uh, not just knowledgeable, but extremely informative and entertaining and passionate about things uh, having to do with architecture in the city. David, why don't you tell us a little bit about Landmark Branding and what Landmark Branding does? Sure thing. Thanks, Jeff. So uh, Landmark Branding is a, uh, a marketing support firm, and uh, we work with realtors, with developers, architects, design firms, uh, and we create marketing strategies, content, uh, editorial. Uh, we work on websites, and we also work on VIP tours and events, as well as training for brokers so that people have a chance to kind of fix on certain details that they can really use to help bring a building to life for a prospective tenant or customer. Uh, I always feel that people will remember the gargoyle on the gable long after all those steel kitchens are just one blur. And um, if you're not going to demolish polish, another favorite tagline of mine, uh, make the skyline your bottom line. So I've been um, working now... um, since 2013, I've also had a chance to work with, as you've mentioned, Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York, a uh, wonderful person, giving her a great shout out. And she and I created the Room at the Top Tour, which are tours of historic skyscrapers around New York City. Um, invite only, but it's out to the architectural community. We've done the Woolworth Building, One Wall Street, uh, the General Electric Building, the Chrysler Building, um, go into the lobbies, go as far up into them as we can, and have as much champagne as we can stand. So. Well, I'm a real estate professional, but the uh, artistic appreciator in me really loves those events, uh, and I really appreciate getting invited. That's Thank sort of you. a plug to keep me on to keep mm-hmm. me on your list for those. Uh, the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge really uh, speeded up the development of the Heights. Um, how did that change the neighborhood? We know what it did for Brooklyn as far as uh, bringing it closer to Manhattan, but how did it specifically impact the neighborhood that, that, that the base of the bridge on the Brooklyn side went up in? Well, the Brooklyn Bridge entered the, the, uh, enters Brooklyn at what was then you know, a fairly much an industrial point. So I don't know that the bridge physically really impacted too much of the, uh, the domestic fabric, if you will, of Brooklyn Heights. Uh, what it did do... And what the IRT did about 30 years later, I think around 1911 or so, was that all of a sudden it created actual mass transit to Brooklyn Heights. And what had been sort of a leisurely commute for you know the bankers and uh, sort of Wall Street aristocrats, uh, now all of a sudden you had people arriving by subway, you had people arriving by omnibus, you had you know horses and carriages, and you had a lot of the, the dust and the smoke and the traffic that had been associated with Manhattan for so long. And the thing is, is that Brooklyn Heights began to lose what was considered its sort of special, sort of almost rural, semi-rural quality. It, it was no longer sort of a retreat from the city. It was being incorporated into the city very much as a borough, very much as a uh, contingent uh, neighborhood, if you will. So I think uh, Brooklyn Heights did lose a bit of its luster uh, because of the bridge and definitely because of the subway. Hmm. When, initially. Was, when was the first building in the St. George Hotel complex built? It was done, I believe, around 1918 or so. I'd, I'd have to check that one. I know that the St. George was uh, famous for having, at one point, the largest saltwater swimming pool, indoor swimming pool, in the United States. It also had the largest ballroom in the world. Um, neither of those interiors have survived in any substantive way. Uh, but uh, the St. George was, for a time, the must must uh, have ticket for any presidential candidate because it was the largest public assembly in all of New York City where a candidate could address the public. Mm. 
was it uh, constructed only as a hotel, or did it also have residential housing? I've always wondered that. No, uh, it was it was a hotel. It's oh. been converted to residential housing and is now currently student housing. But yeah, it seems interesting that uh, Brooklyn joined the city in 1898, and then you'd have the because you look at it from the street, and it's just it it encompasses a full square block, and it is enormous. It's really enormous, mm-hmm. and just as a as a business person and a real estate. Uh, professional, I think you know what what kind of demand uh, and what was happening in the neighborhood at the time that really could have called for the construction of such a huge complex when obviously there also was the business to support it. Well, the the idea is, is that Brooklyn, I believe, was really uh, going uh, undergoing such rapid growth during the period between the 1890s and when the St. George Hotel was constructed. Uh, people thought the sky was the limit. I mean, look at the Williamsburg Bank building. It's a magnificent Art Deco building. It seems to be out in the middle of nowhere, quote unquote. But people assumed that an entire forest of those things would soon be surrounding it. Uh, you have to remember that the uh, St. George Hotel would be the closest hotel to the Brooklyn Bridge but also to the Navy Yard, and beyond that, uh, potentially to a new series of piers that were being constructed then for ocean liner travel. Uh, We're accustomed to the ocean liners being associated with the west side of Manhattan, uh, but um, any liner that actually comes into New York these days is more likely to berth in Red Hook. So the St. George Hotel becomes sort of a place that was seen as a potential nexus point for actually international travel um, into New York City itself. Well, let's fast forward a little bit to uh, right after the Second World War and talk about one or two of the impacts that were maybe better known that Robert Moses had on the neighborhood, but maybe Mm. one or two that were not. Mm. Well, um, Robert Moses, uh, of course, was the sort of the great builder, if you will, of the post-war period. Um, It's very easy to be ambivalent about, uh, I think, his legacy, although... Uh, he definitely created uh, a tremendous network of parks and playgrounds and other such things. Uh, he was less sensitive about urban fabric. And to be perfectly frank, when you look at photographs of many New York neighborhoods during the 1950s, it's easy to see why. Um, the country had gone through the Great Depression. Uh, World War II had happened. The economy was definitely rebounding. But you know, people were not around to fix and take care of things. Basically, it was 25 years worth of deferred maintenance you were looking at in any direction you cared to. And Brooklyn Heights had really taken on the characteristics during that period of a slum. And Robert Moses wanted to drive uh, the BQE straight through the heart of Brooklyn Heights. Basically, all of those neighborhoods would have been eviscerated. It's hard to think of uh, the Heights as slum-like. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, but the grand houses had become, uh, for many, pl- many places, they'd become boarding houses. Uh, they'd become tenements. Uh, they'd become commercial ventures. Um, many of the houses in the northern part of the Heights were abandoned. Uh, however, what this did do was it made it very attractive to the kind of over over um, sort of the overspill, if you will, from the Greenwich Village area. And a lot of writers um, and many artists had actually moved into Brooklyn Heights because accommodation was cheap. Um, it was still pleasant. You know, you had these beautiful big windows. If you happened to be a painter, you were close to views of the river. So W.H. Alden, for example, lived in Brooklyn Heights. Uh, Hart Crane lived in Brooklyn Heights. Um, Truman Capote actually lived in Brooklyn Heights for quite a while and wrote very affectionately of the brownstone architecture uh, that he observed around him during that period. So uh, a lot of these people were sort of inspired to rise up and say to Moses, no, actually, this is really quite a unique 
place, you know, architecturally and in terms of community, and where we're not just going to let you know a highway come through and and demolish it all. I think Benjamin Britten and Peter Pierce also lived mm. in the Heights with Auden. Did I think they lived with Auden, or maybe upstairs or next on, door on Remsen Street, on Remsen as Street. I recall. Wow, so, wow. Yeah. And of course, uh, Brooklyn Heights was also the famed neighborhood of uh, the famous or perhaps infamous Norman Mailer. Yes, well, <laughs> for quite a while. Um, so the the upshot of this was that Moses actually rerouted the BQE uh, into the configuration that we're familiar with now. It skirts the border of the Brooklyn Heights. And um, he also did something that I think is actually one of his greatest achievements. And I have never, I haven't seen it equaled anywhere else in terms of just sheer kind of ingenuity. He created the Brooklyn Heights Promenade, which is, you know, is a, that amazing cantilevered sort of balcony that overlooks all of Lower Manhattan and really stretches sort of the length of the heights from Remsen Street all the way north to where uh, the uh, Dumbo area is. And that to me is one of the kind of almost unsung glories of New York. I'm uh, always happy to go there, uh, see the people living there, taking advantage of it. And I'm always a little bit surprised that more people don't visit from elsewhere because it's such a magical kind of thing. You have this wonderful, very, very intimate neighborhood on one side, and then you have the full glory of the Manhattan skyline on the other. It's quite it's quite a contrast. Well, New York has a lot of places like that, places that are unbelievably beautiful, uh, but a lot of locals don't go because it's out of the way, and a lot of tourists don't go because it's mm. not in the general you know, uh, middle of the, of the tourist hub. Exactly. Uh, New York has so many wonderful secrets uh, and so many wonderful lesser travel to uh, beautiful places. Uh, it's one thing that's always struck me about the city. When did we begin to see the heights develop into the more prosperous, uh, the more beautiful, uh, well-kept building kind of neighborhood that we see today? When did that start coming about? It started really in the post-war period. Um, from the 1950s onward, there became from a kind of scholarly angle more interest in 19th century architecture. And then uh, people who were still working down in the Wall Street area realized something. They realized it was still easier to get to Brooklyn Heights than it was to get to Upper Manhattan. So all of a sudden, people who were professionals began to look at Brooklyn Heights and be like, "You know what? This is great." The the I mean, you know, ten minutes on the subway. What's that? You know, as opposed to a half hour or forty five minutes or wherever it is to get elsewhere. And professionals began kind of rejuvenating the houses and kind of turning them back into single family homes or transforming them into middle class apartment style living. Uh, and that process just continued and continued over the last, I'd say, 50 or 60 years. It was probably not only the first neighborhood to really see gentrification, but the first neighborhood to be in New York City a registered historic district, which oh, was in 1965. That's, that's right. That's right. I forgot about that. So, uh, again, it meant the people there were interested in the architecture from a very early um time in, in, a, in American history as these things go, 19th century architecture, but also that they knew that if they bought a house, the house next door wasn't going to be torn down suddenly for an apartment building. Um, in other words, you were kind of moving into an area that was going to maintain its character. And I think that became more and more attractive, almost exponentially for people as time went on. One building I've always wondered about is the Heights Casino on Montague Street. Was that started as a club? or? Uh? Yes, that is a, a club. Um, and just to explain, uh, the term casino back in the 19th century did not necessarily refer to gambling. Um, it was simply a sort of a, a place where people gathered for parties and entertainment of any kind. So people go there for concerts, lectures, that sort of thing. Uh, the Heights Casino has always had a um, focus on sports. 
They had the very first indoor tennis court of any building in the United States, 1902. Uh, Flemish Revival architecture, very distinguished, uh, beautiful addition onto the, uh, the north side of the building. And then they also host the Brooklyn Kindergarten Society's annual ball, which is the longest-running, continuously operated um, nonprofit in the United States. Uh, it's there to serve children, kindergarten, ages kindergarten through um, 18 at this point, all five boroughs now. It did start in Brooklyn. And it was founded by a group of women who realized that many of the young women uh, near Navy Yard were widowed because of the dangerous work of the Navy Yard, and their children were going unsupervised. So uh, I have some dear friends who have been very, very active in that, and I've been uh, uh, a guest of that ball uh, pretty much every year for the last 15 years. Wow, there's amazing history in the Heights. Uh, and New York is full of it. You walk down the street, and in our uh, speed of uh, getting from one place to another, we just pass by buildings and don't even wonder sometimes what, what's the story behind them. Well, we've been here with David Griffin. Uh, David is the CEO and founder of Landmark Branding, a very creative business that helps commercial landlords to use specific architectural features about their buildings uh, and their marketing and to market themselves to the business community. David, thanks so much for being on the show with us. Thank you. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Michael Dolce, host of Secrets of the Sire. Joined every week by my co-host, Hassan, Lord of the Radio Godwin. Together, we have over 15 years' experience creating graphic novels, screenplays, and more. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on the pop culture universe you love to talk about. Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back with the second half of Rediscovering New York. Our neighborhood today is Brooklyn Heights, Brooklyn's first neighborhood. Uh, I was reminded by our last guest that I forgot to give his contact information out. Uh, if you want to reach David, uh, you can reach him at dgriffin at landmarkbranding.com. Uh, if you have any comments or questions, um, you can reach me uh, at jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Uh, support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, uh, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark can be reached at 646-330-4735. And the law offices of Thomas Siaka 
handling trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. One note, we're not a business show about real estate, even though I am a broker, uh, but there is a great one. It's called Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my colleague from Halstead. You can hear it on Voice America on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. and also on podcast. Also, Rediscovering New York, you can like us on Facebook and follow me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is Jeff Goodman NYC. How novel. And it's with uh, great pleasure that I welcome our second guest, uh, restaurateur in Brooklyn Heights. His name is Francesco Nucitelli. Francesco's love for the hospitality industry began in Italy. When dissatisfied with his job in finance, he quit to pursue his dream of working in restaurants with the hope of one day running his own. He started his career at a local cafe in Italy and through his success assumed an ownership role. In 2000, Francesco sold his interest in the cafe and moved to the Big Apple, where he learned English and landed a position as manager at the renowned Il Gattopardo in Midtown Manhattan. Francesco fulfilled his dream of running his own restaurant in 2013 when he opened Sociali BK in the heart of Brooklyn Heights. Uh, among the many accolades Sociali has earned are a good standard rating from the Michelin Guide and the Diner's Choice winner by OpenTable.com. And with great pleasure, we welcome Francesco. Welcome, Francesco. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, yourself in, in Italy. What part of Italy are you from? I'm from uh, a little uh, city um, called Carpi, uh, which is located nearby Modena. Uh, the main uh, nearest biggest city is Bologna. Modena is a very... Uh, popular um, food capital in Italy. We are very famous for the balsamic vinegar. It's an industrial automotive uh, district. We produce Ferrari cars. We produce the Bugatti. So it's um, a blue-collar, beautiful little town. 150,000 people live there. Um, Foggy weather is very similar to New York City. Um, Very out of the beaten part of tourists, but beautiful and very fascinating city. How did you get involved in, in the restaurant and hospitality industry in Italy? I was, um, I, I paid for my own education in Italy. Um, I funded my uh, degree in business administration work in, in finance for a bank. Um, the day after I graduated, I quit the bank because I couldn't, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't take it anymore. And I started to work in, um, you know, in club, in bars. Uh, at the end of that little uh, two years of apprenticeship, I took ownership of uh, a little bar called Bar Roma in uh, Novellara, a little town called Novellara in the Reggio Emilia province. And um, I owned it for five years. Oh, wow. Uh, when you came to the United States, and this is something that I, uh, this is a little bit of a personal question. Uh, uh, and I studied in England as a student, but there was no language barrier. What was it like coming to this country and not having a command of the language when you arrived? I mean, um, the the language barrier is a big barrier. Uh, Don't get me wrong, it's the biggest probably. But what I learned uh, living in New York City is that uh, this uh, is a special place where you uh, gotta be simple and humble to be welcomed, and I wasn't. Um, I was coming from an experience of uh, organizing big events in Italy. I was gonna organizing parties, so I, I'm afraid I learned after so many years in New York City that I showed up a little bit too full of myself, so all doors were closed to me. While I noticed that when my mom was coming, 
and my mom was this um, is this beautiful humble um, little um, Italian woman which is adorable everybody was helping her and I'm like mom I don't understand why everything is so easy for you while everything is f so difficult for me and uh, I learned why uh, I learned uh, after eating a big uh, slice of humble pie that mm -hmm. uh, New York served me well, it really is a great city. I often tell uh, people who think New York is unfriendly, uh, if you stand out with a map on a street corner and look like you're lost, uh, the number of people who will come up and actually go out of their way, out of their fast New York pace to try to help you. Agreed. Uh, uh, after you were here for a while, uh, you landed a position at Il Gattopardo in Midtown. And when was it that you decided that you wanted to open up your own restaurant? Um, you know, I was, um, I was a floor manager in a little trattoria in the East Village in, uh, on Avenue C and 4th Street. Uh, we got so good and blessed to receive uh, a visit from Frank Bruni from the New York Times, and we got uh, two stars. Um, that, uh, you know, boosted my career and uh, at that point I decided I was ready to uh, challenge myself with a Midtown experience. Um, right uh, when I took position at Il Gatto Pardo, uh, Sociale was already in, uh, in, uh, in its planning phase. So I was looking for location, I was, uh, because mm, the, the person that uh, uh, gave me the money and invested in me already uh, showed me the, his interest to, to open a restaurant in Brooklyn. So um, before to have my own restaurant, I knew that I needed a, a more challenging operation and Il Gatto Pardo was exactly what I needed. And uh, it was worth it because that's where I learned everything. Oh, great. How is it that you decided to, to come to Brooklyn Heights to open up Sociale? What was it about the Heights <laughs> that appealed to you that, that had you decide? Because some business owners buy an existing business in a place, and there are lots of factors. But when you start a business from scratch, you're really creating it from nothing. So what was it about the Heights that, that really attracted you? You're right, because it was a, an air saloon before um, I opened and uh, there was a lot of uh, construction, a lot of demolition going on. The, um, the, you know, the building or the, the build up of the place took almost three years. So it was a, a huge, huge um, operation to put together. Um, it's a story that it I... It took three years to... Yeah, open. because, wow. you know, yeah. we had to move the staircase. We had to demo the whole thing, all the permitting. Uh, we got into this little uh, conflictual uh, phase with the DOB, which is always... Uh, um, very, very challenging. Um, so I'm starting with my bike going everywhere in Brooklyn to look for a for location, Greenpoint, um, Cabo Hill, Carroll Gardens, um, everywhere. At some point, I fell in love with this um, beautiful Main Street that you described so well in, in a previous segment, uh, Montague Street. Um, and I started to uh, explore a little bit the neighborhood, and I remember I um, tied my bike in a, by a tree on, uh, on Orange Street. After like 10 seconds, somebody came out from a building and said, you're not supposed to lock your bike over there. So I thought, this is the neighborhood where I want to be. <laughs> uh, Brooklyn Heights, as, as we talked about in the first segment, has undergone a big, a big change and continues to undergo a big, a big transition. Uh, Sociali BK, everyone, by the way, is not on Montague Street. It's on Henry Street. Mm -hmm. uh, and the address is exactly? 72 Henry. 72 Henry Street. 
How did you come up with the name Socialli? What does, uh, I'm, I, I can pronounce Italian a little bit, but I don't speak the yeah, language. Yeah, most of our guests have a hard time to pronounce our name because it's Sociale. You pronounce it perfectly, uh, but the final E is very confusing to a lot of, um, to a lot of people. Um, you know, in every uh, little town in Italy, uh, we have something called uh, uh, Centro Sociale. Uh, Centro Sociale is a place where two different generations gather. Uh, you have the elders that go there and uh, uh, drink Lambrusco, play card, and you have the youngers, um, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, you start to go out uh, with your friends, without your parents, um, because, you know, uh, everything is cheaper, you can buy uh, sweets, you can buy sodas for cheap, and, um, you know, there's bocce, people play bocce, mm -hmm. And uh, there's always a, a place where I, you know, I have the, my best memories. My, uh, my first girlfriends, uh, my first uh, uh, motorbikes. Uh, so the Centro Sociale is something that uh, uh, contributes a lot to the, to the growth of many, many Italian teenagers. I don't know now, but when I was a teenager, that's where we used to um, see each other, at the Centro Sociale. Um, so that's uh, where the name came from. Mm. Is there anything about Brooklyn Heights and you're having a business in Brooklyn Heights that uh, in any way is similar to, to your experience with uh, Trento Sociale? Is that uh, um, correct? The, uh, yes. The answer is yes. And uh, I think that uh, Brooklyn Heights is still one of those uh, hidden gems where uh, there is a very, very strong uh, um, sense of community. Uh, at the Centro Sociale, everybody knows each other. And uh, most likely when I run my dinner or lunch uh, service, I have uh, mostly every single table know each other. So you have uh, uh, people that go constantly stand up during dinner to go say hi to other people eating at the restaurant because uh, it's a real, real, real community. Um, this community is tied up by churches, by schools, uh, by daycares. Uh, so there's a lot of families and a lot of uh, uh, interaction between all of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you find that, that most of your customers actually live in the Heights, live in Brooklyn Heights? I would say 90% of them. Oh, wow. we, are, uh, we serve and we cater the community. We are a classic uh, neighborhood spot. Uh, with, uh, you know, in respect of uh, uh, the price tag that we are, that are on our menus, uh, in respect of uh, the fact that I probably know uh, all the single family members of my regulars, I know the kids, I have, uh, but not only of my regulars, you know, when you have to, buy, when you have to build a, a community-oriented restaurant, you have to... Um, be um, there also for people that for a reason or another don't patronize your business. So we uh, have kids uh, that are whose parents never came to my restaurant. They run into the restaurant, steal us uh, grapes for the bar, and, and then escape. They come in from ha for hugs. Uh, they know all my staff. Um, the fact that the parents come or don't for dinner, it's very secondary. Ah. Well, it sounds like a very community-oriented business. That's what it is. Hmm. All righty. Well, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with Francesco after a couple of announcements. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. with Francesco Nutitelli, owner of Sociali BK at 72 Henry Street uh, in the older part of Brooklyn Heights. So you heard the, uh, the streets named for fruit, actually the northern part of the Heights or the older part of the neighborhood. In fact, uh, it is a quaint part. You still can find wooden structures in the northern part of Brooklyn Heights. Uh, how long has Sociali been open for, Francesco? We opened for business uh, at the end of July of 2013. Mm-hmm. So it's almost uh, six years. Have you seen the neighborhood go through any changes? Yes. Um, we are, uh, you know, um, I consider Sociale, uh, I consider Brooklyn Heights, I'm sorry, one of the most beautiful uh, neighborhoods in the whole city of New York, which I consider the most beautiful city in the world since I moved here and I still uh, wouldn't change it for anything. Even uh, more beautiful than Roma? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, okay, you brought it up now. Um, I think... Uh, uh, it's very interesting you said that because I think Roma is the New York City of two year, uh, 2,000 years ago. So they are very similar, very uh, cosmopolite city, very full of diversity. Um, and uh, Rome and New York City have uh, a lot of similarities. I find myself home every time I'm in Roma. Oh. Well, I'm partial to Roma. I actually have family in Roma. I have Italian ancestry. And uh, uh, my cousin, actually, whose name is Francesco as well, Francesco Torneo, lives in Roma. Uh, right by um, uh, uh, Piazza Fiume, actually. But anyway, that's a very nice neighborhood. Uh, so, so how have you seen the heights change in the in the time? You know, the, there? um, there's um, a lot of um, development going on in the area. Right across the street, uh, we used to have uh, um, a beautiful little independent movie theater. Uh, there is not uh, there anymore. Uh, they raise up. Uh, uh, four stories, um, luxury uh, condominium now. So we are having uh, um, new uh, neighbor coming, neighbors coming in. Um, the development, uh, uh, the endless development going on on the Brooklyn Bridge Park is bringing in uh, more and more people that are, you know, uh, discovering what you called uh, in the previous segment, uh, our secret gems are being discovered by more and more people. Uh, Brooklyn is getting on the international guides 
So our beautiful promenade is becoming uh, something that is, uh, um, you know, visited by thousand and thousand thousand more people uh, um, a year. Um, there's, um, you know, a very big uh, turnover in restaurants, um, above all in the Montague Street area, because it's not easy to operate a restaurant in that neighborhood. That's uh, exactly what we were talking uh, before. You gotta, you gotta um, have a, a strong sense of community to be able to operate in that uh, neighborhood. The um, the audience and the, and the crowd is very skeptical when you very, when you first arrive. They think, by definition, that you're gonna be there for six months. And go out of business mm. because they have uh, uh, their habits. They used to go to the same restaurants. They've been going for like 20 years. And whoever is the newcomer, like I was, uh, is um, you know considered the guy that is not gonna uh, open to stay. Fortunately, we we proved them wrong, and uh, we but we had uh, to invest time and passion and love to nurture that kind of uh, clientele because, you know, it's, uh, it's not easy. It's not, we are a new uh, school establishment. We're not that kind of uh, uh, Italian uh, cash-only, uh, checkered tablecloth uh, kind of um, operation. So mm, the 60, 70, 80 years old crowd uh, took a while to be... Um, to be brought on board, but they are all on board now, and it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure and an honor to serve them. Well, I'm looking forward to, to dining at Sociali. My producer looked at the menu, and he said, we have to go. <laughs> I said, you, yes, we will. You'll be uh, more than welcome. Uh, but uh, I, I'm not a stranger to the Heights. You know, uh, the Heights has a history of long-standing restaurants, even those that are not there anymore. Uh, personally, I started. my mother started taking me to Brooklyn Heights. We had a cousin who lived there in the late 70s. And there were restaurants that were there that had been there for years and years and years. There was a Chinese restaurant on the corner of Henry Street and Montague. Uh, the Hungarian restaurant had been a mainstay for decades. That's been long gone. And then uh, Capulets on Montague just recently shut down. So uh, I can see how there's a, uh, a tradition and a determination that someone who's going to join our ranks really has to be special. Uh, and you have to. You have to. If someone is thinking about opening up a business in, in Brooklyn Heights, would you have any particular advice for them? Any? Um, you know, uh, that's uh, an advice that I would give you to any new restaurant uh, in general, um, because, and, but especially for uh, the Brooklyn Heights area. It's, uh, you know, when I first uh, decided to open my own restaurant, uh, you know, it's all about your ego and your creativity. Uh, it's, you know, very often ego and creativity go uh, on the same proportion. So uh, the bigger is your ego, the more creative you think you are. So sometimes when it comes to food and, and when it comes to Italian food. Especially food and especially Italian food. Especially Italian food. You just don't need to be that creative because people want uh, a good meatball. People want a good spaghetti with tomato sauce. People want a good fried calamari, a good lasagna, a good um, chicken al matone. So um, what I was able to 
build was uh, to create a very uh, traditional uh, menu uh, but uh, bring back the way we do it uh, in Italy. So uh, bring back the preparation to what it was the nonna, my nonna preparation. So every pasta is homemade. Uh, we are, um, you know, we are little uh, working on the presentation. So we are creating this contrast of uh, offering incredibly traditional food, uh, bruschetta, rice balls, um, in a new um, school kind of uh, plating style. So we're serving that on metal plates, on, uh, you know, oven baking uh, kind of uh, um, uh, wares, and uh, it's working. It's working very well because um, there's a moment when you want uh, to have uh, a, a different, I don't want to use the word upscale because we're not upscale, but a different uh, uh, kind of uh, setting. Um, for example, we have the courts very close. Um, I have lawyers, the same lawyer that go and eat um, a $5 falafel two, blocks uh, two, two stores away where I am to my beautiful uh, uh, friends of the Heights um, falafel. The same lawyer, if you have to have a meeting with a judge, come to Sociale because it needs a different kind of um, environment. Mm. And, um, but still, you don't want to be too creative. You don't want to be even too regional. Well, I, I know the answer to this next question would be all of them. Uh, if I asked you what were some of your favorite dishes, but what are the what are a couple of the things that you take special pride in that uh, were, are unusual that if someone comes in, you should say this this is really uh, uh, the soul of Sociali BK. What would um, <laughs> um, our chef is um, coming from. Uh, um, a long experience uh, at um, an iconic New York Italian restaurant called Scarpetta. Uh, no, um, Scarpetta, great celebrity chef Scott Conant. Um, he brought us a very simple but magic tomato basil sauce that became our signature dish. So our uh, homemade fresh spaghetti in tomato basil sauce, I would consider our um, signature dish. Uh, together with our polypo, our octopus, our Spanish octopus is um, a real, real, uh, <laughs> a real, real um, hit. Um, we we sell a lot of um, octopus because it became very popular in uh, in the whole neighborhood. Well, our our listeners can't see, but uh, I'm a big sucker for tomato-based sauce and also octopus, and I wrote them down and circled them on my, <laughs> yes, on my notes. That's, that's what I'm going to be having when I visit Sociale. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things about some neighborhoods, uh, and I'm not going to ask you to name any names, is, is sometimes neighborhoods have very interesting characters, people who are around that everybody knows, who have, uh, let's say, unusual aspects to their personality. Um, have you encountered any any uh, people who have sort of uh, are neighborhood mainstays, but but don't fit into the general just walking down the street? Yeah, we have ma we have many many stories. You know the 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 neighborhood. First of all, the neighborhood is populated by um, very important people. We should say um, intellectual writer, authors, uh, journalists from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journals, actors, celebrities. Um, we have. Uh, Full, we are full of story because you know every time you open for business is just uh, uh, opening the curtain on a show that is the um, show of humanity. Uh, we have uh, um, 
less lucky um, people that are you know begging for food every day and there is a, a couple of uh, um, homeless people that are usually come for the uh, to the restaurant to have food as they go to the uh, pizza place as they go everywhere and we are more than happy to add them uh, we have uh, some sort of character of people that like to come by themselves to the restaurant and talk to themselves their own uh, their own um, <laughs> during their own lunch um i would say f when we do what we do and how we do it you get into people's lives so you know their stories you know they're good they share with you the good news they sh they share to, with you the bad news and it's uh, a very colorful uh, show of uh, life Hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you. That's really, really enriching. Um, we've been spending a little time with Francesco Nucitelli, the owner of Sociale Bicchiai, an Italian restaurant in the heart of Brooklyn Heights. Francesco, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for this having evening. me. It's good to have you. And uh, I do look forward. I'm getting hungrier just <laughs> hearing about some of the food. Um, uh, Italian's my favorite cuisine, by the way. Thank Not you, surprising. Well, thank you for joining us, everyone. Uh, if you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our show's mailing list, please email me, uh, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, where it's Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And also follow us on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram handle is jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors. Uh, one of them just rang, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage and the law offices of Thomas Siaka, handling trust, estate planning, and probate administration. And also our chief sponsor, who's me. I'm a real estate agent at Halstead, and whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, I and my team provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. And thanks to our special consultant, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on Rediscovering New York. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Do you like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Michael Dolce, host of Secrets of the Sire. Joined every week by my co-host, Hassan, Lord of the Radio Godwin. Together, we have over 15 years' experience creating graphic novels, screenplays, and more. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on the pop culture universe you love to talk about. Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, talkradio.nyc. The 
The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 